All right, who is ready to open up the Gospel of John one last time? And not not only that, we're going to do something we've never done in our entire two years in the Gospel of John. We're going to go through a whole chapter today. So we're going to look at John 21 today, and we're going to talk about something to be clear up front that is not always the most fun thing to talk about. We're going to talk about failure. And failure is not something that is enjoyable, and the feelings that come with failure also not enjoyable. And I'm not talking about, you know, business failure or fitness failure or sports failure, even though I'm still haunted by losing the lead in our district championship game my senior year in high school, and even though it was half a lifetime away. Those are not the failures I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual failure. Spiritual failure. It's something in some shape or form every single one of us has experienced. We are, you could say, in the business of failure. But the good news is Jesus is in the business of restoration. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see the restoration from one of the biggest failures of all time. One of the most famous things ever, uh, you know, if somebody fails in following Christ, recorded in all the Gospels, Peter denies Christ three times. And what we're going to see today is how Jesus restores him from that. And I think we will be challenged, but I think we'll also be encouraged as we consider how Jesus will restore us in our own lives. We want to learn six lessons, really, from Jesus's restoration from Peter. So if you haven't yet, open up your Bibles to John chapter 21, as we look at this whole chapter. And I think it's helpful to do all of this in one shot, because chapter 21 is really something of an epilogue to the book of John. In a lot of ways, the main story, the main events are all kind of wrapped up in chapter 20. Jesus rises again. He reveals himself to his disciples. And even Doubting Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then what we saw last week, John again summarizes what the whole point of this book is so that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's where the end would go really nicely right there. However, like books you might read, sometimes, even though the main events are over, there's an epilogue that helps, well, there's still some lingering questions I have, or there's still some loose ends that haven't quite been tied up. And that's what I think we see here in John 21. And the main one that we'll look at today really is, well, what about Peter? What about Peter? Because last we saw him, you know, he denies Christ even after the resurrection, It highlights John believing. It doesn't quite say the same thing about Peter. What is going on with Peter? And if you think about this from a historical context, it may even make more sense. At this point in time, it's likely that all the other Gospels have been written, but also that the book of Acts has been written. So people see all the Gospels, Peter denying Christ, but then they see Acts, Peter, this bold preacher, and many are probably left to scratch their heads and say, How did he get from, how did that happen, right? Well, John 21 is going to answer the question, how does Peter go from his failure to being restored and serving the Lord? 
We're going to see those six lessons. The first we're going to see from this story, really, in verses 1 through 14. Let's just start with the first few verses here in John 21. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, Peter goes fishing here. And if you've been a part of a church for a while, and especially if you've gone through John 21 before at all, you know, people have takes. People have some hot takes on the different things that go on in this passage. And the first comes right here with Peter saying, I am going fishing. Because some people will take that and say, oh, look at Peter. He's abandoning Christ again, right? He's denied Christ. And now, even though Jesus has called him to be a fisher of men, he is abandoning that to go back to his old life of fishing. And I don't think that's necessarily justified by what the text says here. For instance, Jesus had told them to go to Galilee. So they had a reason to be in Galilee. And while some people have a hot take on the other side, look at Peter, he's being so responsible. He's not being lazy. He's not sitting around doing nothing. Look at him, he's getting to work, right? I think the the reality of it is probably somewhere in the middle. I don't think this is an abandonment of him following Christ, but we have to be honest, likely Peter is still in somewhat of a broken state here. He has not experienced complete restoration from the failure that he had in denying Christ three times, but that's when Jesus shows up. Verse four says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, this should be ringing some serious bells for you. Because this goes back to the beginning of Jesus' relationship with some of these guys, especially Peter, James, and John, all of whom are present here. When he calls them to follow him, right? a very similar thing happens where they're fishing all night. They've caught nothing. Jesus says, put out their nets and they say, okay. And wow, they're overflowing with fish. And so as we consider that, that should ring some bells. And it looks like it rings some bells for the apostle John. Verse seven, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which as we've gone through John, I think it's very likely that's referring to John, the apostle that wrote this book. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. That sounds very on brand and in character for Peter, right? There's the Lord, let's go, I'm diving in. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And although they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So as we see this amazing catch of fish that uh, rings some bells from Luke chapter 5, you read the rest of it and it gives the account, it tells how many fish there were. And speaking of takes, there's a lot of opinions about the significance of these 153 fish that go back centuries and centuries in the church. And I think a lot of them missed the point. They try to get into, well, if you add up one and five and three, or you add up, you know, numeric values for these words. And that's something I look at the whole of scripture and I don't see that really happening. So I don't think there's some hidden meaning. This actually sounds very much like what happens when people go fishing, right? I mean, you, you think about, ask a guy, hey, how big was your, your kid when, when he was born? And they'll say, I don't know, you've got to ask my wife. Ask a guy who's gone fishing how big the fish he caught was, he's got all the numbers dialed, right? Oh, it was this long, it was this many ounces, right? That's what they know. That's, there, was a hundred, there wasn't a lot of fish, it was 153 fish, right? And they were large fish. And we're putting that down in scripture so everybody knows about all of the fish. But again, while a lot of people focus on that, I think there's another thing that should be a flashback. There's another thing that should, hey, wait, that sounds familiar. Did you notice? While they're bringing in this great haul of fish, doesn't Jesus already have breakfast? Doesn't he have fish and bread? Where did he get that? That's a good question. <laughs> and it seems like it's another miraculous provision of Jesus providing for them. And then at the end, you know, he took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, is that starting to ring any bells? Well, John chapter six, or recorded in all the gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. Again, a flashback to how Jesus had provided for them. And in verse 12, it says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, what's going on with that? You have to think there's still some remnants, uh, uh, some layer of almost disbelief with the disciples. And I don't mean disbelief in the sense of like, I don't know if I really believe Jesus and what he said, but almost a, this is too good to be true. Is this really happening kind of disbelief? Like, is this real? Like, am I dreaming? Am I tripping out? Like, well, what's going, like, is Jesus really here again? But through all of these things, they realize, no, this is the Lord. Jesus is back. And it's as if Jesus is communicating to them, I'm here. I'm real. Yes, there's a difference with his resurrection body, but I am the same Jesus. I'm the same Jesus that did the miraculous catch of fish the last time. I'm the same Jesus that fed the 5,000. And Jesus is still the same Jesus today. Point number one, as we think about restoration from failure, we need to trust that Jesus is the same. Trust that Jesus is the same. Hebrews 13 verse 8 simply says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the same. All the way back to the past, all the way to the future. That doesn't mean there's no differences. I mean, right now, the difference is he is not physically present with us, right? 
We don't have the same experience of Jesus that the disciples had, but Jesus has not changed. Everything that we have learned about Jesus over the last just over two years, right? It's still true about Jesus. Jesus is still the living water that can satisfy your soul. He is still the bread of life and whoever believes in him will never hunger or thirst. He is still the light of the world and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness. He is still the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is still the resurrection and the life and he is still the vine in which we must all abide. None of that has changed. And even here, it's as if he's telling his disciples, I can still provide for you. Just like in the feeding of the 5,000, it says in John, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He said it to test them, right? He's asking them, hey, where are we going to get, where are we going to get food? It's not because he didn't know, but he wanted to test their faith. And it's as if now he's saying, I can still provide for you. He's also making it clear, I'm still in control. Remember how every week when we looked at the arrest and the trial of Jesus, one of the points was basically trust that Jesus is in control. Because every week John's like, look at this, look at this, look at this. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm still in control of where the fish in the Sea of Galilee will be. And while we cannot see Jesus, remember some of the closing words of chapter 20, where it says, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And we believe and have that faith that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so as we continue in this story and even see how Jesus deals with Peter, it's the same Jesus that we deal with today. And now we get really into the meat of Jesus's interaction with Peter in verses 15 through 17. And our next three lessons are going to come from different aspects of these three verses. Let me read those for us. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so as you look at this passage, and again, if you've been around church Uh, before, as you look at these three questions, you've probably heard people talk about there's two different Greek words used for love in this back and forth. Like I just said the word love a lot. Well, in the Greek of the gospel of John, there are two different words. One is agapao, which is the Greek or the verb form of agape. Maybe you've heard that before. And that's the city of this committed love, right? We see that in marriage. We see that in the example of Christ. And then there's this other word, phileo, which sometimes we get even the idea of brotherly love from. Even you think of today, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And Phil, you see that phileo root there, 
even in the name of that city. And so what some people say is they look at this passage is, well, we really got to dig in here because they're, they're talking about different things. Jesus talks about agape, you know, this, this highest form of love, but phileo, it's not quite, you know, like agape is what you feel for your wife. Phileo is what you feel for the boys, right? Like, you know, like that kind of word, like agape is I love you. And, and phileo is kind of like, I really like you a lot. And if you read it that way and you, look, and you insert those meanings into it, the flow would go something like this. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And basically Peter would say, yes, Lord, you know that I really like you a lot. Ah, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I like you a lot. And then the third time, hey, Simon, do you really like me a lot? And then him saying, you know everything. You know that I like you a lot, right? And and that's what stings the first time Jesus, the third time Jesus brings it down to phileo. Well, I want to tell you that I don't think that understanding actually works. And if that's what you've heard in the past or you're holding on to that from some Bible study or Sunday school class, I want to give you a few reasons why. I don't think we should really dig into what are the different shades of meanings of those words. And the first is that this harsh distinction between agape meaning one thing and phileo meaning something and something lesser than agape just doesn't work in the New Testament. The father loves the son. It says that in John 3.35, and it says that in John 5.20. Well, guess what? One time it says, uses the the verb form of agape to say the father loves the son. And then the other time it uses the word phileo. God really likes the son a lot. What happened to the love of the father for the son if now he only phileo the son, right? No, clearly nobody is saying that. They're two different words to describe love. Also, if you noticed in this passage, there's other words that come across better differently in English. John uses a lot of pairs of words even in those three verses. Notice the responses of Jesus. He uses two different words for feed or tend, and he uses two different words for lambs and sheep. And nobody's really saying, we really need to dig into what he means by, why is it that we're to feed the lambs, but then we're to tend the sheep? What's the difference there? Oh, and then we need to feed the sheep. Well, like, no, we're kind of saying that they all mean roughly the same Thing. And a third reason why I don't think we should try to just draw all this out from the differences of those words is that this conversation probably originally happened in a different language, probably happened in Aramaic, and we're reading about it in Greek. So already what we're reading is a translation of the conversation. And the fourth reason is I don't think the reason why Peter gets upset is because Jesus uses phileo that final time. No, I think the reason he gets upset is because Jesus asks him three times. Let's just put on our thinking caps and think really hard. Why would three times be significant to Peter? Hmm, how many times did he deny Christ? Three times, right? That's what Jesus is specifically calling out Peter's failure here. By asking him the same amount of times he denied him if he loves him. But Jesus is not doing this to stick it to Peter, not doing it to make Peter feel bad. He's ultimately doing this to restore Peter. He's doing this to love Peter. Yes, he is highlighting Peter's failure, but he's trying to help 
Peter, move past that failure. Point number two, know that failure does not have to be the end. Know that failure does not have to be the end. Thank God the denial is not the ultimate way we remember Peter. It was not the end of the story for him. And your failure spiritually does not need to be the end for you. And maybe some of you, there's specific failure that you're thinking about in your life right now. A failure in a personal struggle with sin. Failure in your marriage. Failure towards your kids. Maybe failure in some spiritually related way towards at your job. Some relationship in your life that has been wrecked or damaged and you know, yeah, that's on me. Whatever it may be. Whatever that is, That doesn't have to be the end. That doesn't have to be what you're known for. And ultimately, what's going to make the biggest difference in your life is how do you respond to that? And that's ultimately what Jesus is trying to steer Peter towards here is how he will respond from this. But notice that he does it by really addressing Peter's failure head on. And even that's part of what I think that first question he asks, do you love me more than these? What does that mean? More than, more than what? Well, there's a couple ways you can understand that. One could be, hey, do you, Peter, do you love me more than you love the disciples? I don't think that really fits. Uh, another one could be, do you love me more than these? And maybe Jesus is pointing to the pile of 153 fish and the boat. Yeah, that's possible. But I think the best way to understand it is Jesus is asking him, Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Because that, again, goes back to at least the ideas that Peter was getting at when he's saying, everyone else will fall away, but I will die for you, Jesus. Peter, in his own words, had basically said, I'm more committed to you than everybody else is, Jesus. And now Jesus is coming back saying, do you love me more than they do? And I think it's important, Jesus restores Peter but he doesn't do it just by overlooking his sin. He doesn't do it just by sweeping his sin under the rug. No, he deals with it head on. And that's hard because what's easier for us a lot of times is to live in one extreme or the other. Where I've, on one extreme, I've failed, I'm done, and I'm just gonna live in my failure for the rest of my life. And I'm even gonna let my failure just define me for the rest of my life. That's one extreme. Or then on the other stream, it's just going to be, well, hey, I'm just going to act like my failure never happened and just never talk about it, never deal with it, and just try to, hey, I'm moving on to the next thing and never address what went wrong. Where Jesus is saying, no, I want you to move on, but we're going to move on by dealing with what you, what you did. We're, we're going to, hey, do you really love me more than these? I'm going to ask you three times if you love me. But again, the point of that wasn't just to convict him, wasn't to rub it in. It was to help him move on. Are you ready to do that with your own sin? Not just to live in it, not just to pout about it or uh, woe is me for the rest of your life, but also not just to, well, I'm going to act like it never happened or try to downplay it or make excuses for it. I'm going to go to Jesus and deal with it head on with him. And as Jesus moves him on, I mean, how can failure not be the end? And Jesus, I think in the repeated questions gets right to the heart of the matter. What is it that he repeats three times? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And and as you think through failure in your own life and how you're going to respond to that, you know what the most important question is? Do you love 
Jesus. Point number three this morning, never stop loving Jesus. Never stop loving Jesus. Peter wasn't the only one of the disciples to, sp- to fail in a spectacular way. Anybody, can anybody think of another disciple that failed pretty famously? How about uh, Judas, right? Betraying Christ, big time failure. But a very different ending to Judas's story, right? Judas, the Bible says he felt bad. He even went and basically, he threw the money back at them. But his story ends with him committing suicide. How is it that these two guys both do something terrible and one goes on to suicide and one goes on to ministry? Is it, well, what Judas did was worse. Well, yeah, that's probably true. But ultimately, I think that the point is Peter really actually loved Jesus and Judas did not. Peter really wanted to follow Jesus and to serve him. And I think at the end of the day, Judas wanted something from Jesus. And you start to see that spill out, right? You start to see him get frustrated in the gospels. You start to see him complain, hey, why are we wasting this you know, precious ointment on, on Jesus when we could sell that money and give it to the poor when actually he wants to steal from it, right? Clearly, Judas is not in it to serve Jesus. He is in it for himself. And your response to failure is going to expose what and whom you really love. That's what's going to be shown as you respond to failure. And even it's possible, even in our culture, to follow Jesus on the outside, to have it look like you're doing all the right things when really you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And failure sometimes will expose that. Because if what you really want, if what you really love is the praise of other people, right? Sometimes when you fail, you have now lost that. And if that is really what you loved and that is really what you lived for, now that it's gone, you're not gonna be able to move on because my God has been taken away from me. But if you're actually, I'm all about serving Jesus. And if I fail and some people don't look at me the same way, that's ultimately not what I'm here for. I'm here to serve Jesus and to love him. And I'm gonna keep loving him. If what you really want is ministry success, right? That's gonna be exposed. If what you really want is that picture-perfect family or those perfect children or that amazing and successful career, if that is really what you love more than anything, sometimes your failure is gonna reveal that. And sometimes when that's taken away from you, even in your failure, it's gonna make clear, what are you really living for? And Jesus keeps bringing it back to love me, live for me. Do you really want Jesus or do you really want what Jesus can give to you? And that's really what you're after. Is Jesus the end that you're after or is Jesus a means to some other end for you? Because when you fail, the only thing that's really gonna get you up off the mat to keep on going is I actually love Jesus and I want to follow him. One thing that we like to say a lot here at Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley, is there is no treasure like Jesus. And our response to failure is going to show, do we really believe that or not? Because if there is no treasure like Jesus, then we're always going to get back up and keep going because he is what I'm after. But if our treasure is in something else, 
it's gonna be harder to recover because we've lost the other thing that we really wanted and it was never all about Jesus. But even in that, sometimes, you know, it's, it's not like it's always just, well, it's Jesus or something else. You know, there's a battle going on in our own hearts and you see Jesus even acknowledge that or Peter at least acknowledge that. Notice every time he responds, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, right? He appeals ultimately to Jesus's knowledge saying, you know that I love you. Jesus, I, I know that I have failed. I know that I messed up, but you know that I love you, right? And ultimately, Peter is not just gonna say those words. He is going to live that out. And Jesus doesn't say, well, yeah, Peter, I don't really trust you anymore after what you did. No, he, he restores him. And what is it that he tells him to do repeatedly? I mean, he puts it three different ways using this combination of words, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That's the response that he, then he tells Peter really to express that love. This is what I want you to do. And Peter was going to have a very clear role in the early church. And I believe Jesus had already made that clear to him. And so now Jesus is trying to restore him and prepare him for that role of leadership in the church that he is going to have. And as we think about that, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's look at something that Peter would write decades after this conversation with Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 5. And he's going to use some similar language. Jesus is using the language of sheep and lambs, right? That's when we use the word pastoral, that's the idea. I mean, we think about ministry and church. The other way you would say pastoral, you talk about shepherds and sheep. And that's the imagery we see Peter coming back to here in 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right here, he comes back to this language of shepherds. And Peter now, as a shepherd, someone that has now lived out Jesus's command to feed the flock, to tend the, the sheep, right? Now he's exhorting other leaders in the church to do the same. And that was Peter's role. And so as we think through our fourth lesson today, put this down, keep serving the flock. That's what Jesus told Peter. Hey, Peter, keep serving the flock. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. He would tell us something, I think, similar of, hey, keep, keep serving my people. Keep serving the flock. Now, your role is going to look different than Peter's because there are zero apostles in the building today, okay? So none of us have the same role that, that Peter had. We have some, it talks about elders here. We have a couple of those in the building. We have deacons and, and some leaders in the building. But everyone has some role to play in serving the body of Christ. Just go back to chapter four in 1 Peter. It's right across the page in my Bible. In verse 10, it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there we see every Christian is called to serve. This is very similar to what we see in other passages that use that analogy of the body, that we're all different parts of the body and we all have to come together and do our part for the body to work. And as a Christian, that should always be a part of our life. If you really love Jesus, even in the wake of your failure, you will continue to serve the body of Christ. You will continue to serve the flock of Christ. And now we do need to think a little bit carefully here because you might say, well, couldn't that be used as an excuse? You know, you think of maybe somebody in ministry that does something bad and you think they, they shouldn't be in ministry anymore, but they use this as an excuse to keep doing ministry. Well, that's where I think we need to think carefully. The Bible has very specific qualifications that highlights the role of leadership within the church. And the leadership needs to meet these qualifications. And if you don't, you can be disqualified from leadership. And that's an important thing that, that churches need to protect and defend. And if you try to use this as an excuse to, you know, well, I was a pastor and I blew it, but I'm just going to keep being a pastor, right? right? No, that flies in the face of other things that the Bible says. But I think what I want us to all understand, that doesn't mean that we should check out of the body of Christ. No matter where we are, if you are a Christian, God is calling you in some shape or form. And that's where in some seasons, it definitely might not be leadership, but God is calling you still to serve the body. There's a whole list of passages in the New Testament that use this phrase over and over again, one another, love one another, exhort one another, uh, bear one another's burdens. We never check out from that. There are so many needs in the church that there's always some way to serve. But again, a lot of people, when they're processing their own failure, I just want to check out and I don't want to do anything for anybody and I don't want anybody to do anything for me. That's a recipe for disaster. God is calling us to continue to serve the flock of God. And again, that's where we might serve even though if, hey, some position that I had or some other way of service that I had is, is gone, I'm gonna keep serving because you know what? I love Jesus. It wasn't about the position. It wasn't about leadership. It's about Jesus. And that will always keep you serving and caring for others in a right and healthy way. Keep serving the flock. So as we just remember those three verses back in John 21, we, we see those few threads that failure doesn't have to be the end. He's restoring Peter, but he's doing it by dealing with his sin. Ultimately, the, the key motive for restoration is going to be love, and the action that's going to be lead, lead to is really serving the flock of God. Well, next, Jesus goes on to say something else, because he doesn't just give Peter this call and this responsibility. He actually gives Peter a very strong word of affirmation and encouragement. And we see that in verses 18 and 19, where Jesus follows up saying, feed my sheep with these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
And so in that statement where he talks about, hey, you were old, you're young and you address yourself and go, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. Even just think, as soon as I stretch out my hands, what does that start to get you think of? A cross, right? And crucifixion. And that's clearly the idea here because in verse 19, it says it was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And that's what probably even by the time John is writing this letter, that's already happened. Peter has been crucified for his faith and for serving the Lord. And now let's come back to it. That's the word of affirmation that Jesus gives to Peter. How, how, would, how would you like that if that was the word of affirmation Jesus gave to you? Would that be comforting to you? Jesus, I, I sinned, I know. And he says, hey, keep going, keep loving me, keep serving me. And by the way, you're gonna be killed for your faith. Would you be like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Or would you be like, wait, wait hold up, what was that? Um, what, what was that? I liked that, you know, hey, keep going, serve the flock. Yeah, I like that. I'm gonna die? What's up with that? You picked me right up there, Jesus, right? That's maybe what we would be thinking. But with Peter, you see, he really did love Jesus. And he really had blown it in that moment of testing. But what Jesus is basically saying to Peter here is, hey, Peter, you failed. But you're gonna be tested again. And this time, you're not going to. You're gonna be faithful to the end. And that's why it wasn't, well, you're gonna die. It was, no, Peter, you're gonna be faithful to the end. You stumbled here, but I'm gonna tell you, Peter, you're gonna finish the race well. Let's put it down that way for point number five, finish the race well. That should be our goal. You think of Philippians chapter three, where Paul even writes of forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. I press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's, that's our heart. That's our goal. I want to finish the race. I want to keep going. There was a, a friend of mine that recently did a, a marathon. When I heard about it, I texted him. I was like, you ran a marathon? Exclamation point, question mark. And he responded back. He said, I finished a marathon. I didn't run one, <laughs> right? Um, and I wonder at the end of our lives, how many of us might say something similar? Hey, I finished the race. There were some moments where I, I didn't run well. There were some moments where I fell on my face, but I finished the race. That's what our focus needs to be on. And again, we're not saying that. You might not have some specific promise of Jesus prophesying specifically how you are going to die, but consider these words from several months ago now in John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That should be an encouragement for us. Jesus is holding on to me, so keep going. Finish the race well. And what we need to deal with our failure, we can't, like we said earlier, sweep it under the rug. At the end of the day, what's the next step in front of you? What is the next thing that God is calling you to do? And do that. Because we don't know when our race is going to end. So if you live today well for Christ, you live this week for Christ, if that's the end, you're finishing well. Finish the race well. well. There's one other thing at the end of our passage in John 21, a little bit longer of a section. Look at verses 20 and 23. It's a kind of a warning, I think, all of us need in the process of restoration. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, that's 
likely the Apostle John, following them. The one who had also leaned back against Jesus during the Last Supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So again, I said the purpose of John 21 is tying up some loose ends. And I think, again, the main one is Peter. But also we see here another one that John, the author of this gospel, which I think is, again, made clear in verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true, right? He's trying to clarify something else because it seems that by this point, this rumor had started, this rumor was going around that John is not going to die. John is going to remain alive until Jesus comes back. And again, at this point, it's likely that John might have even been the last of the 12 alive. And from what we know from kind of traditions in history, he's the only one of the disciples that is not martyred for their faith. And so you can see how some of those rumors might even be picking up steam at this point. And John doesn't want people led astray. John doesn't want people second-guessing things when he does die. So he makes it clear, guys, that is not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say that I was going to remain until he comes. He just said, if He was using it as an example. And ultimately, that's where, again, I think the point of this is really about Peter. And that's the point of that statement. Jesus is saying, so what? What that guy is is doing is immaterial. It's irrelevant to you. You, Peter, you follow me. Don't worry about what John's doing. Don't worry about what I'm doing with John. You follow me. Point number six, don't get distracted by anyone else. Don't get distracted by anyone else. Because it's easy to think, well, what about this guy over here? What about this girl over there? And Jesus would still say to all of us today, what is that to you? You, follow me. Focus on me. There's a couple of different ways that can work. You might get distracted by somebody who is better than you or seemingly running the race better or faster than you. And saying, well, I'm never going to have as much scripture knowledge as that guy over there. Or I'm never going to be the wife and mom that that girl is over there, right? And we start focusing on that instead of focusing on Jesus and running after him. You can also be distracted by somebody who you feel is worse than you, but looks like they're experiencing greater blessing than you. And that guy's lazy. That guy never shows up prepared to life group. Why is everything in his life going so well, right? When everything in my life is so hard right now. When I'm doing the work, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not a slacker, right? Come on, God, where, where are you at? And we can get distracted by that. You can become critical even not just of individuals. You can look at other ministries or other churches and say, well, why do they have a building, Right? Or you, you look at them and say, well, they, they don't do that different. I like how our church does it better. I don't, I don't know why they do that. 
And to all of those things, whether it's people or churches or ministries, Jesus is looking at you saying, what is that to you? You follow me. You focus on me. And something we have to realize, a couple truths we have to admit is, if your focus is on following Jesus, there is always room to grow. And there's always grace to cover what you're lacking. And when you focus on other people, you're probably going to forget one or both of those things. Where if you're just looking down on everybody else, you're going to forget you've got room to grow, buddy. But if you're you know, just feeling like a failure looking at everybody else, you're also forgetting, well, hey, Jesus has got you and his grace is covering you and he is the one that is helping you follow him. We need to be warned of what Colossians says. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. Let's not be a self-deceived people uh, comparing ourselves to others. Let's compare ourselves to Christ and keep on following him. Failure is something we've all experienced. And failure is something in some shape or form, hopefully as we grow as Christians, uh, that becomes less severe and less often, but uh, failure will be a part of our lives in this fallen world. How are you going to respond when it does? Is it ultimately going to come back to, I'm following Jesus because I love him and I'm serving him and I want to keep on running? Because at the end of the day, it's all about him. He is the one that we're chasing after. Look how again, how he's described how amazing Jesus is in the very last verse of John. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus is too wonderful to fully describe just in one book. Jesus is more amazing than we can even comprehend in two years of study. And he is worth following no matter what. Let's pray together. God, we do want to thank you for the gospel of John, but Lord, most importantly, we want to thank you for Jesus. He's the one that this book is all about that we might believe that he is the Christ, he is the son of God, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. It's all about Jesus. And God, I pray that our lives would be that way, that our lives would be all about Jesus, that we would love him more than anything, that we would pursue him, God, that even when we fall, what would motivate us to get back up and to keep going, be that we love him. We think he is worth it. We think he is the treasure that is greater than anything else. So God, we do want to thank you for what we've learned. And again, ask that we would live what we have learned in the gospel of John, Lord. And we thank you that we can know, Lord, wherever we're studying your word, God, we're never going to open it and be lacking, God, because your word is so good. So God, give us grace, give us a focus on Jesus that we might follow him. And we lift this all up in his name, amen.